Hello everyone and welcome to this Career in Ruins special podcast. Now, Derek, if I asked you about New Zealand, what would spring to mind to you? Well, to be honest, three things, three very different things. Number one, Lord of the mm-hmm. Rings. Number two, Flight of the Concords. Number three, Shortland Street. Oh, Shortland Street. <laughs> See, it's this level of ignorance, Derek, that, um, that has made us do this special podcast for everyone uh, out there today. And that's because, I don't know if you know this, but it's coming up to be the New Zealand Archaeology Week. I know, that's really exciting. And I know for a fact we have at least six New Zealand listeners. So it's really important to inc- be inclusive and bring them into the podcast. I know, uh, we, I know we've got five times more Australian listeners, listeners than we do um, New Zealand listeners. But that's not the point. We're shining a light on, a, on something that's more than just Lord of the Rings and Flight in the Concord. So, um, and Shortland Street. So um, I guess we better do a roll call because we've done, um, we've got some special guests as well, haven't we? We do, we do. Um, So yeah, I don't know, shall I do the uh, checklist? Yeah, go for it. Uh, So Derek Pittman. Present. Uh, Andy Brown. Present. And Josie Hagen. Present. Excellent. Hi you guys. (laughs) Lauren Shaw. (laughs) <laughs> present <laughs> right <laughs> guys thank you for joining us for for the uh, chat i wonder if briefly you could just give us an overview of of where you're based and um what you, what your roles are within um within new zealand archaeology andy do you want to kick us off yeah sure i'm based up in uh, the north of our uh, uh, north of new zealand and a uh, place called whangarei uh and uh i worked for a time which is where I met you guys over in the UK at Bournemouth University um, and we came back here and started a commercial company um, based in based in Whanganei but also doing a lot of work in the central North Island uh, so places like the Bay of Plenty, uh, Gisborne district and, and, uh, and other areas uh, and so that's that's what I do most of the time. Amazing and Josie what about yourself? Um, I'm in the Bay of Plenty in a town called Whakapani and I work for uh, mine and Andy's boss, Linda, um, in situ heritage, and just a field archaeologist, really. Um, we do consulting on different things and help people manage the archaeology that they've somehow met with. Do you specialise in any any area in particular? Um, oh, specialism probably probably lidar remote sensing. Awesome. I had the best teachers. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, guys. This is this is an exciting little bonus episode that we we weren't expecting, but it's um, well, I think we're going to put you guys in charge largely today. We're just we're just facilitating, but we're looking forward to hearing a bit more about the amazing archaeology of New Zealand. So I don't know who wants to kick us off by just giving us. I, I, where's, where's best to start, Derek? Do we want to know more about archaeology in New Zealand or do we want to know more about New Zealand Archaeology Week? Well, I, I think we need to start off with archaeology in New Zealand because I, I know that to many of our to many of our Anglophone listeners in the Northwestern Hemisphere, they probably don't know a great deal about New Zealand archaeology. And I think it would be good to get a sense of what it is. What is, what, what is New Zealand archaeology generally? Um, so Andy, would you like to talk us through it? <coughs> Sure. Well, some of you will know that New Zealand is Scotland, but further. Um, <laughs> and uh, if you're aware of the posters, um, yeah, no, we're, we're a little country stuck down in, in the South Pacific. And uh, 
and oh, just really floundering, guys. <laughs> You're doing a great job. Can I, I, mean, that can is I start a, this again? Sorry, I just feel I feel like we've got to admit our mistakes when we're in them. And you know, <laughs> Derek, it's the, Derek, it's the ladder. <laughs> now, we might have to leave this bit in. That is one of my favourite moments in our collective lives, um, the ladder story, uh, where we were both co-teaching a lecture and uh it's it you always sort of fall into analogies in lectures and uh somehow somehow i don't know how you got there you started to tell a story about how was it material culture is an extension of the body like when you carry a ladder around <laughs> yeah and uh i think i said something like or like you know driving a car driving <laughs> yeah and the whole room went from like 30 kids not understanding what was going on to 30 kids completely understanding what was going on <laughs> <laughs> that that Sorry. common experience of running around with a ladder that everyone can relate yeah. to. <laughs> but yeah, no, by all means, AB, start 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 from scratch. Okay, <laughs> let me start that again. I can do better. I can do better. Uh, so yeah, New Zealand's um, obviously in the South Pacific, and it's um, it's one of the last places to be settled by human beings in, in the world. Uh, it was kind of at the end of quite a large scale colonization uh, that started in the Western Pacific and moved across into Samoa, up to Hawaii, across to Rapa Nui, and then eventually down to New Zealand. Um, and so the, the first colonists were, were Polynesian people, bringing with them a very uh, Polynesian uh, set of artifacts and ideas, and also, of course, crops, which is really important. And so um, those people had quite a big challenge when they got to New Zealand, um, and as much as they'd left a very tropical environment and they had to establish themselves uh, in a very non-tropical environment. New Zealand's, broadly speaking, a temperate climate. And so that um, that really is, is probably the main challenge when f people first got here. And so we have, um, of the range of species available to people in the Pacific, uh, probably the main ones that really took in New Zealand are the kumara, um, yam, taro, some other things. But kumara becomes quite important over time. And a range of things that develop to sort of, I guess, account for the uh, the poorer climate in New Zealand and things like that, and a lot of that, a lot of those things, particularly pits, uh, storage pits, are a lot of what we see in the archaeological record today, particularly in the North Island. Uh, so when people first got here, they tended to focus on things that were relatively easy to get, I suppose, in the landscape. We've got some large flightless birds, we've got uh, seals, people went after them. But over time, and actually relatively quickly, uh, people transitioned to a fairly full horticultural type um, subsistence base and that's really um, what we think of today when people think about Māori society I suppose that's really what we're thinking of and that, that doesn't take too long to develop in New Zealand a couple of hundred years um, and uh, that's I suppose a, you know an awful lot of the archaeology we see in the country is, is based around that sort of period that later period of settlement in New Zealand uh, in 1769 James Cook arrives <clears throat> and that really starts the European period there was earlier contact with um, Abel Tasman in the 1600s but that was relatively fleeting uh, so from 1769 you start to get uh, much more European contact and European Europeans coming down and trading um, whalers sealers all sorts of things like that and then sort of I guess by the the mid to late 1800s much more prolonged settlement and people coming out there and, and really colonizing as the case may be and so from an archaeological point of view um, that's a period of real interest as well. That sort of that melding of two quite different cultural uh, backgrounds or cultural areas and, and peoples uh, mixing in New Zealand. 
uh, be it missionary sites or or just sort of sites of commerce. And so we've got a number of sites from that <clears throat> from that historical period in the country relating to um, yeah, as I say, mercantile activity, industry, particularly gold mining. I think, uh, and I think it's worthwhile noting as well that while we think about um, perhaps the European colonization and, and Māori as well, that sort of uh, gold mining activity, we see a lot of Chinese coming into New Zealand. And that's a really important part of the kind of cultural makeup of New Zealand as well. Uh, and so, yeah, and so progressing sort of through pastoralism, all sorts of things like that up until the present day. So that's a very, very general overview of, of um, I guess, the what we'd see in the archaeological record and the, and the basis for it. Very general. That's amazing. Thank you, Andy, for that, that that overview and that that sort of that history is really important. I think for people to understand the transitions, people are arriving to the islands and, and influencing influencing the land and the landscape. Josie, with regards, Andy touched on some of the things we might expect to see in the archaeological record. Now, all four of us here have worked in Wales in the Priscellis, looking at the stones of the Stonehenge projects, and uh, so we've all got a pretty good handle from either from that or from from other projects of. Sort of European archaeology, even in Greece, where it's relatively accessible. Um, when we're looking at uh, things like the planning process, uh, generally there, there's a there's a pretty simple process to follow in terms of do geophysics, do some trial trenching, perhaps uh, do some watching briefs, etc. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, I get the feeling in terms of the terrain and the um, sort of environmental covers and the variation that Andy touched in his 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 sort of coverage there, that accessing and understanding those different levels and layers of archaeology and history that Andy's touched on there must be quite challenging um, from an archaeological point of view. I wonder, Josie, if you could just talk us through about yeah how, what what the challenges are what what's the variety of the archaeological record and the considerations when when things are going on in New Zealand yeah it is varied um it's also quite regional so a lot of the stuff we do in the Bay of Plenty and Gisborne is more of the Maori archaeology the pa the pits the terraces all associated with like um Maori horticulture and subsistence and then down south there's a lot more of the gold mining stuff um and yeah, all through New Zealand, really, there's the historic buildings and things like that. Um, and yeah, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Andy, but archaeology is technically only protected if it's past 1900. So in the UK, we have like the rolling system. Um, so things that were probably around in my grandparents' time are now possibly protected, but um, we don't have that in New Zealand. So it's just the 1900 stuff and onwards, um, unless something is listed, I believe. Um, yeah, I actually... I still haven't done too much with historic buildings or anything like that. Um, and it would be really interesting to see all of that stuff, um, especially because the historic buildings are much more recent com usually compared to English ones. Um, just just, just to build on that then, um, JC, obviously you, you say a lot of the stuff you work on is the older stuff. What does a, uh, what does a week in archaeology look like in New Zealand? What's, what, what, what is the job like? That's good. So... Sometimes it's just office stuff, writing out reports and um, that kind of stuff. We have the um, ARC site, which is run by the New Zealand Archaeological Association. And that's like a GIS website of all the recorded archaeological sites in the whole of New Zealand. Um, and when you do a piece of archaeological work, you'll update the record that goes with that site. Um, so that's part of the job. Um, for example, 
this week, well today, I can tell you what Andy and I did today because we're working together this morning. Um, we had a subdivision, or no, not even a subdivision. Um, someone was wanting to build a tiny home on a near a pass site. So we had to um, scrape back the terrace that they wanted to build on and see what was underneath and loads of pits popped out. So that was quite cool. Um, and then this afternoon, we there's um, a track on some headlands near us called uh, Natapawai Toy, and they want to do a uh, doc who manage the um, headlands there want to do track like the visitor track upgrades. So we were just going to map all the archaeological sites and kind of let them know where if they want to extend the track or refurbish it where they might be at risk of hitting archaeology. And there's just stuff all over there, midden and pits and things like that. Um, so yeah, we're just walking. It was amazing, really. We were just walking along these amazing cliffs with beautiful views, taking in the Sounds archaeology. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a dream job, really. It's really cool. Well, and I don't um, understand why you left England, to be honest, and went to New Zealand. I just don't get it. <laughs> just don't get it. No, so, yeah, it was, it was a great day, a really good day. And tomorrow, Andy's going off to Gisborne, which is a town far away from us, and I'm just carrying on the, um, the track recording. Um, but we also work in forestry quite a lot. Um, so there's a lot of commercial pine over here. So when there's archaeological sites in there and if they get planted or not planted, we kind of give them advice on removing trees and managing the sites that they have within their forests. Oh, I mean, there's someone that dabbles in a bit of forestry. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> what I really like about that is it, to be honest, it just sounds like a, a day in the life of archaeology anywhere in the world, which is really, really cool. Um, but there is obviously, there is the slight, elephant in the room of uh you you are working in a place that has without downplaying it some colonial baggage we could say um in terms of how how archaeology is done and we know that archaeology as a discipline has its own kind of track record of not being the the best in terms of how it's how it's applied particularly outside of um outside of northwest europe and we also know though from previous podcasts chatting to people like christina douglas that archaeology has the power to repair and to build and to empower um, indigenous communities in a way that i think the, the history of archaeology hasn't been particularly good at so how does how does archaeology modern archaeology contribute to kind of the, the process of repair in new zealand in terms of how how you work with um, the Maori communities and how you investigate sites that are ultimately their heritage, it's a really good question. Um, we I think look we're trying. Um, we haven't we haven't nailed it. I don't mm. think necessarily, but uh, we have as part of the legislation. For instance, we have um, consultation with local hapu and iwi groups to ensure that they are aware of uh, you know for instance of works taking place. Uh, in areas that they have interest in, that they've got an understanding of that work and, and have a, have an ability to, to comment on it and, and, you know, comment on its impact, which is a good start. Um, but I think a lot of archaeologists, and this might not have been true, you know, 10 or 20 years ago, but certainly now, I think a lot of archaeologists are really doing a good job of um, trying to get a bit beyond the legislation and actually have people uh, involved in the process from start to finish uh, we do a lot of excavations i mean even today we we were out uh, on the on the track and before we did that work um, there was a karakia we had two local uh, elders komato as we'd call them uh, who came and, and blessed the work 
and uh, it took us 20 minutes um, but it gave us cultural support and it kind of covered us I suppose in in terms in the event that you know something went wrong Uh, and so there's that sort of involvement as well so it's it's um involvement in terms of um, being able to bless the work and, and, and give the work, uh, I think, a, a level of um, support that it needs. But I think increasingly the more interesting stuff is around actually engaging Māori uh, in, in terms of uh, not just archaeology work, but in terms of cultural work. And Josie's been doing a lot of this with her masters, um, which I'm sure she can talk about you know, better than I can, but it's work that's happening across the country where actually the, the focus is less on just involving Māori and what we're doing from a day-to-day basis, and also, and, but actually thinking about it from the perspective of, well, how can we involve Māori further up the pipeline mm. in terms of development of research, development of uh, questions and, and that sort of thing. Um, and as I say, we, we're not perfect, but I think in that space, there's a lot, there's been a lot of growth and a lot of archaeologists are moving towards that and, and doing some really proactive things. Uh, so, you know, in the, in the little space that we work in, uh, we um, are talking quite a lot to various hapu and iwi about what their interests are beyond just the commercial realities of what we're doing from the day to day, but what, you know, where we could potentially push into with um extra you know if we had a bit of extra money what we could what we could do with that mm-hmm. uh, and so I think Māori are um, themselves quite engaged in it um, they are incredibly savvy I think in terms of understanding um, both the potentials and the limitations of archaeology and also I think archaeologists are becoming more aware of um, the, the potential of, of integrating Māori knowledge into the kind of western mm-hmm. science narrative so I think it's a give and take here, and it's a bit of a test um, test tube, I suppose, of how that can work. Mm. As I say, we're not there yet, but there's a lot of good stuff happening around the country, I think, from a, a, lo- a range of different parties. And as I say, Josie's been doing some things with, with respect to cultural mapping that she can comment on probably far better than I can. But... I was quite keen to pick up on that cultural mapping because you, you gave a lecture uh, to Bournemouth a little while ago and you, you mentioned some of the issues about... Um, how Maori communities were losing losing a sense of location within stories and you mentioned the importance of some of Josie's research so Josie could you talk us through some of what you've been doing with story maps and how that can resituate stories in the landscape so my master's project was a joint it was a collaboration between um, me as the archaeologist and then um, uh, Whariyonga Onga Trust which is a block of land that's owned by Māori shareholders. Um, so with regards to the cultural mapping, that's something that they'd been doing for years and years and years and years. Um, they had um, iwi researchers who had walked the landscape, knew it absolutely inside out and knew where all the sites are um, and had you know, the stories connected with them because um, they'd spoken to Kamata and or the elders and they had a really good grasp on it all. But what they actually wanted was because um, I think there's like 3000 shareholders, a lot of them live in Australia now and they're away from the land um, and perhaps don't have access to it. They wanted something that was going to be digital or transmissible for those people that don't live nearby who can't or who can't access the land because it's steep and it's hills and um, takes a bit of effort getting around. Um, So where my skill set came in as an archaeologist was you know, interviewing all these people that had all the knowledge um, and they very kindly shared that all with me. 
um, and we made an ArcGIS story map, which kind of had together the whole the narrative of the land, starting from like first Maori arrival and incorporating a lot of the stuff that Andy said about like the Aotearoa um, archaeological narrative, but mixed in with the cultural stories that they had that were really unique to Farayongonga. Um, it was a real privilege to do the work. Um, and I learned so much from those guys. Um, I really owe them a lot. Um, but it was just, you know, like Andy said, we're, we're all working on it as archaeologists, what we can do. And this was one thing that I think worked. <laughs> um, we, I, had a, I gave a presentation to the trustees because they wanted to see the final story map and they seemed to really, really like it. Um, and I'm going back in August possibly to do another presentation to an even wider audience, which will be awesome. Um, so yeah, that was just kind of one example of how archaeology can be used um, to help those kind of communities or give them something that they want, um, I think, yeah. That sounds like a real triumph, Josie, and I guess um, it's about that coming up with new approaches, being disruptive to the traditional approaches in terms of, of engaging people using using technologies such as story maps, but also um, making it accessible. I mean, uh, that sounds fantastic. And is it something that would be made publicly available or is it something that's specifically for, for these, these groups? Yeah, specifically for them, um, because there is some culturally sensitive stuff in there. Um, mm -hmm. It's not going to be made public. Yeah, that's but fair I'm enough. Hoping yeah. <laughs> sorry, I was going to say, sorry, Tinja, I was just cut across, but I was just going to say that that's fair enough. That's, that's something they can own and they can they can refer to and appreciate without concern that um, of, of culturally sensitive influence on those sites and things like that. So really, really yeah. valuable. Um, I'm, I'm very aware that we, we've been quite broad and we talked about a number of things um, like site types, like PARs and things like that. Um, or, or pits, but we haven't really delved into any any nitty gritty um, as to what a par is, or um, um, why why pits are important, and and all these other bits. So I wondered, and it may be that neither pars nor pits are mentioned in this, but I wondered if it's time to uh, to bring back this little beauty. I thought we'd put that to bed. I, we, I, I thought we were done with Monty Trumps. Monty Did, Trumps. we grow up? <laughs> <laughs> we might have grown up, but it's always good to regress now and again, and we've got guests, so... Um, and it's, it feels like the perfect mechanism to allow us to explore a few specific sites in uh, in New Zealand or, or areas or locations or features that um, that w we can learn about. So I know Derek and I have done a bit of homework and identified some some sites ourselves, and we've got our ex our New Zealand experts on the line as well who can tell us about some proper archaeology and some, some pro proper specifics. For listeners that may not have gone back to our back catalogue just yet and picked up Monu Trumps. 
what is Monutrumps? And Monutrumps came out of the fact that we were kind of bored of uh, every other news story being about Stonehenge. And, and we wanted Stonehenge. to highlight... Oh, Stonehenge, love me. Pathetic. But actually, we wanted to highlight how important um, so many other sites um, are that... Uh, from d- different time periods, from different formations, from d- different different purposes. So we started coming up with a um, t- the top trump top trump style game, whereby um, one of the categories was distance from Stonehenge, and the further away it was, the better. But I think all we're going to get rid of that. Th- that <laughs> we'll, we'll get some winners here, here won't we? <laughs> <laughs> but um, so we're just going to. I think what we'll look to do is just highlight a few sites, as, uh, specific sites or features or experiences within New Zealand archaeology and um, Derek why don't, why don't you go first well b- before I go I just I just want to point out that how poorly conceived Monutrumps is when I hear it explained back to me <laughs> <laughs> it just seems like something we thought up drunk one evening it's got a good um, theme tune <laughs> it does have a good theme tune and I look forward to resurrecting that at least um so I'm going to start I've got two if that's okay no, um, a classic Pittman I know I know being greedy um the first one it's 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 not really a monu trump as such, but we said the word par an awful lot, and of all the sites and stories I've heard from Andy and Josie about New Zealand, uh, par is one of my the, the thing that's interested me most. It feels very familiar, and I wonder if we ought to just get Josie maybe to explain what a par is and why it is that I find them so interesting. I don't know why you find them interesting, Derek, but I can try. <laughs> um, they're basically, for anyone who's seen one in England or Europe, they're like a hill fort. There you go. Um, oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> That's why you find them interesting. Carry on. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, so they would be... Part, I think, is actually just kind of means village, but usually they'd be in a defensive kind of setting. Um, and... There's lots of different types of ones. Um, usually they're on, you know, a high point, good vantage point, um, close to a, uh, the ocean or a river. Um, ditches and banks, which people might be familiar with, and pits and terraces. Um, midden often cover them, which mm-hmm. is when people had uh, shellfish dinner and then just threw the shells over the side. So back in the day, they would have been kind of glowing white with all these shells, and um, people say it's also a good... It would be quite stinky, wouldn't it? Mm. Seems quite shellfish of them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh. Good one, Lawrence. Um, <laughs> I don't know. No one's ever asked me what they smell like before. but Shellfish, I imagine. It's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that answered the question. It, it, it did, definitely. And it, it brings me on to my, my, my next Monu Trump, which is a bit more experiential um, and a bit more of an exper- experimental archaeology type site. Oh, yeah. Almost, oh, nice. in a way. Very deeply tangentially, if you will. Okay. Um, oh, I'm excited. As, well, within your wheelhouse, then. Oh, God, yeah. As you, as you know, um, I'm a big fan of experimental archaeology and experiential archaeology and engaging with mm-hmm. my perception of what a place may be. Um, for example, I was recently looking for a, um, some holiday experiences and I found some Viking hikes you can go on in Scandinavia oh. which is quite fun you dress up as a Viking and go for a walk um, <laughs> that sounds good which sounds it's a proper like embedding yourself in the, yeah, the old culture yeah. the old ways yeah, yeah. Okay. And, so is there um, something like that in New Zealand yeah you can stay in a hobbit hole in New Zealand um, which <laughs> ties in perfectly well with my perception that it is either Lord of the Rings or Shortland Street um, and you can go and actually stay in a, a, a reconstructed hobbit house which now, 
admittedly isn't particularly archaeological <laughs> I was but say. it looks very cool <laughs> and it's a long way from Stonehenge can I win that? <laughs> you set the bar low you set know, the bar low but rather than bring in our experts you, you have provided a perfect segue into my my money trumps that I've and we, we should say that <laughs> stop laughing Andy <laughs> we should say this is why we're going first because we're no experts I mean um, I don't think either of us have fought. I've been in, a, in an airport in New Zealand that, that's about as close as New Zealand archaeology as I, I've come so let, let's get our rubbish ones out of the way but um using <laughs> so we should say that hobbit holes aren't archaeological related at no. all so anyway <laughs> but using the film theme yeah uh, uh, i've chosen uh, and i don't you, you know me quite well what what when we think about um my interests largely in archaeology what, what what would you say some of my favorite things are trees trees yeah correct <laughs> <laughs> landscapes um lasers and... in planes yeah, I haven't. I do, they're not no, using them no, this time, okay. but yeah. Um, but also just uh, and then films. I like films. So um, I was watching the other day, um, Hunt for the Wilder People. Have you ever seen that film? I haven't. Oh, Tell me so more. Good. <laughs> so good. So good. Um, amazing. Set. I, it's too long to give the background of the film. Go and check it out. Set in New Zealand, but set in the most beautiful backdrop. And I thought I'm going to give that place a Google, and I did. And it's set in the. Let's see if I can get this pronunciation correct. Um, Waitakere. Um, range is how's that Andy all right it wasn't too bad yeah, yeah thank you <laughs> now Waitakere Ranges oh the other thing that I love right national parks it's a national park tick <laughs> trees tick landscape ticks film setting tick but also it's got loads and loads of archaeology so this is where I do some more massacring of um traditional Maori names but um it was set, first settled traditionally settled by the Te Kawa Ireu Ao Maki. How's that, Andy? Any idea of I mask that so oh, much? I don't you don't know even know what I'm talking about. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we'll put it in the text. <laughs> we'll put it in the podcast yeah. text. But um, basically, there's over 50 par sites in this range. So that's how big this area There are over 50 hill forts type um, sites, over 550 archaeological records. Um, and what with the amazing waterlogged conditions, they also have um, things that traditionally perish, so, so such as timber materials and fabrics, that um, they've got these incredible records from excavations in the uh, the early 20th century of, of traditional Maori sort of um, very fragile, very perishable materials that, that have sort of set, set the understanding and, and appreciation for, for some more of the um, material culture that, that goes that goes with the inhabitants of that time period. So a very long-winded say, way of saying, I've just chosen a, a film setting for my money. What I, what I like there is you've, you've Googled two things rather than one thing, so well done. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, though, Lawrence, that's wicked because I've heard of the ranges, but I didn't know there was archaeology there. So I'm yeah. learning something new. Excellent time, time. I think maybe we should all fly out and go and have a look at it. <laughs> yeah, see you there. That's a good, good idea. If, uh, yeah. if people want to go to our Patreon page and donate some, <laughs> <laughs> I mean that that may be the first time anyone's learned anything from our podcast. So that's that's a winner. <laughs> Let's bring in the experts. And yeah. Josie, what is your monument? Well, mine's a regional park, Lawrence. Um, so the park itself is called Papa Moa. Um, probably not quite as big as your one. There's eight separate par um, at Papa Moa. Um, but it is this huge hill fort complex. Um, 
It's got incredible LiDAR. So I think I should send you a picture if you want to share that somewhere because it's awesome. Um, and it's a really cool site because there's the extensive PAR, um, but it also, it's a working farm at the same time. So that's being managed as um, well. Um, and it's, it just, oh, I'm blustering my words, but um, there's one, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> there's one pie in particular called uh, Karanga Umu, um, which has 169 terraces, uh, 151 pits, and it's just huge. And it has a trig point on the top of it. So a lot of people use the park as an area for like recreation, exercise. Um, there's a race that runs there every year. Um, and I don't think people even realize sometimes that they're walking on archaeology. Um, but it's just, you can't believe that you wouldn't see it because there's these like two meter deep terror, uh, ditches and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I just, I think I picked it because it's gorgeous archaeology, but it meant a lot to me as well because it was when I was doing my undergrad, I was looking at LIDAR covering the area and seeing if I could map the PAR um, remotely. And um, yeah, Lawrence, you taught me all about LIDAR, so that was really cool. Um, <laughs> And then I kind of always saw it aerially and I thought, that's cool. It looks really amazing. And then when I first came out here and got my job with my boss, she took me there. And because she does a lot of the management of the park and knows the park really well, she took me on a walk and took me through the whole landscape and just spelled it all out for me. Um, and that's, I think I got really hooked on New Zealand archaeology from that moment. Um, it's stunning. I, I can't even do it justice because it's so beautiful. I will, um, I'll send you a picture or something, but... Um, yeah, it's just a huge power complex, basically. Amazing. So hidden in place. Uh, it, I'm, I'm sort of getting a, a feel for like the is it the Wessex Hill Forts region? Would that be a comparable thing in indoors? It's a huge numbers of hill forts along, along close by, part of a larger contemporary complex. Or have I got that wrong? Even better because we took the hill fort <laughs> survey group and they were blown away. So. Oh, now see, there's a selling point. Okay. <laughs> See. Also, I just need to point out that I'm incredibly glad we went first and don't have to follow this. <laughs> yes, <laughs> this was deliberate. <laughs> so, Andy, Hobby houses. <laughs> yeah, I know. Whose idea was that? <laughs> so, Andy, how about you? Uh, it's so hard. Um, remembering, I think, that we played Monty, Monty Trumps on my last visit to the uh, Career and Ruins hub. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> so I feel as if I can't really pick those ones. And I think I, at that point I was pretty cheeky and picked about three um and peppermore hills might have even been one i'm not too sure um but uh, yeah it's really hard to, i was talk i've been thinking about this all day uh when i've been to be working and um <clears throat> so i difficult. thought you seemed a bit distant <laughs> <laughs> the pressure of money trumps has got to him this is fantastic oh, money trumps is just money trumps is just horrible um i feel as if you like derek you've gone with a place in in uh in the waikato so like the central north island you've you've gone with that with your hobbit hole thing lawrence is the upper north island joseph the upper north island um it's it's seeming a bit north island centric um so i'm gonna pick a site uh <laughs> and pick a site which was the first site that I ever excavated um, just because it's a South Island site and it's a little bit different uh, it's a site on the west coast of the South Island called Westport or there's a, in the, the town is called Westport uh, it's very cleverly named because it's on the west coast uh, and there's a site there called the Buller River Mouse site or, or uh, Kawatiri um, and it was the first site I ever excavated and met my wife there and met a lot of the 
people that are still my friends there as well. Uh, and it's a it's a really really early site. Dates from the earliest period of New Zealand uh, of human occupation in New Zealand. Uh, there's uh, acidic soils. So there's not heaps of bone there, um, but there was clearly evidence of more uh, butchery. So that's the big the animal, the big flightless bird I was talking about earlier. Um, really clear evidence of that, and um, beautiful geophysics there as well. Uh, magnetometry done that showed sort of the different areas that people were living in so there was a sort of a an area to the south which looked like it was a big uh, butchery and kind of fire pit area then the middle uh, where we excavated seemed to be much more kind of small hearths and and fuddy and or houses and stone working so we had stone from um, the north island um, however many kilometers away quite a long way away we had green stone we had uh, or nephrite uh, we had um, other stone from the upper upper South Island, so it's just stone coming from you know hundreds of kilometres away to this one site, uh, as well as people kind of living in the local economy. So it was both sort of a local site and a, a regional or national site, I suppose. So that's the one that sticks out to me as being pretty cool. Uh, there, <laughs> there's, but there are other sites uh, that I just feel as if there's so much so many other type of sites out there that aren't kind of covered by this. I mean, the historical occupation, um, you know, or colonial occupation, if you want to put it in those terms, uh, is so rich, particularly in the lower South Island. I, I did a lot of work down there um, before I moved to the North Island and gold mining sites and um, these amazing sites where you're in, you know, you're in this kind of quite small valley by a river and there's these amazing uh, uh really small crevices in the rock that have been uh, sort of bricked up or, or stoned up to create there's a small stone wall and a small opening in the rock wall where Chinese miners were living um, you know during the the gold rush in the 1860s and 70s and sort of things like that just amazing places when you're there and it's freezing cold you just imagine these guys out there trying to earn you know a crust mm -hmm. Those sites as well really stand out for me. So I kind of I could do a tour all through New Zealand, I suppose. But those are a couple of South Island sites, um, just to sort of represent the South Island as much as I can. I mean, hopefully, what that what that's done. Uh, I think it's important to include your Hobbit holes, Derek, because it does represent <laughs> a, a bit of future history and culture in terms of um, New Zealand's role in a pretty epic film series. But um, and I'm sure New Zealand use it for their uh, their advertising and promotion for uh, for tourism. So a valid in in inclusion. But uh, hopefully, what what that's done is provide a rough or a, a brief in in introduction to the the breadth of archaeology and and the composition of these things and the, the histories that go um, ac across New Zealand and, and the two islands. But Andy, Josie, we we. We sort of agreed to do this podcast because it's all about the New Zealand Archaeology Week, which is coming up. And uh, I, what, what do people listening to what what should people that are listening to this um, podcast do to learn more about New Zealand archaeology, to find out about New, New Zealand Archaeology Week, and and get involved, whether that's remotely or or in person? Josie, what what do you what do you reckon? Yep. So um, if they Google um, NZAA Archaeology Week. Um, there is online a schedule of all the events that are taking place per region and I think a few of them will be on Zoom as well so even if someone was in England or Australia wherever they could probably come <laughs> in and have a listen <laughs> um, which would be awesome um, 
I'm the Bay of Plenty Regional Coordinator, so I know there's quite a few things going on at Bay of Plenty, which will be awesome. We've got um, Kevin Jones, he does a lot of stuff with um, aerial photography, so he's going to give a talk about um, loads of par that he's done um, aerial photography of, which will be really cool. It's kind of up your guys' street as well. Yeah, sounds um, great. And oh, I should tell you the dates it's running. It's from the 23rd of April to the 1st of May. Um, but I think there's going to be a lot of online stuff as well. There is going to be a hashtag um, so you can see what's kind of going on with that as well. But it's, it's, I think we're just working really hard to try and showcase the amazing archaeology that is here um, because it, it is kind of overlooked, in, which is really sad. <laughs> um, so, yeah, there's... Uh, talks, walks, uh, Zoom events, and then the social media stuff as well. Amazing, and Andy, with with COVID, the last couple of years, it, it, is it hope that the this, this year's archaeology festival is going to be a bit more engage, engage, a bit more active, or is it is it same same as normal? I think every year that um, it seems to me. I mean, I've only been back in the country for a few years, I suppose, but it seems to me every year um, people are working harder at it and and trying to. You know, get more events, and I think importantly, one of the things about New Zealand archaeology is that it, it doesn't have a Stonehenge or a, uh, you know, p- the pyramids or the Colosseum or whatever. You know, there's really clear monuments on the landscape um, that people often sort of think about in terms of world history, but it's got so many other sites that are equally, I think, impressive if you understand what they are and you can and and uh, you can see them and. Um, the, some of the best examples, for instance, are in our, our biggest city in Auckland. There's some amazing uh, par right in the middle of, of town. Uh, if only you knew what to look for. And I think the great thing with Ark Week is that people are, are willing to sort of provide that knowledge and, and teach people. So, uh, yeah, I think it's getting, hopefully getting better. Well, it seems to me that it's getting better every year. So, uh, you know, COVID, COVID be damned, hopefully. <laughs> but, you know, people are adapting as well as, as the world is, you know, with, with Zoom meetings and other things, which is great. So, yeah, hopefully this year it's um, a little bit less virtual and people can get back face to face as well. So valuable. Amazing. Guys, thank you both so much for uh, staying up late and joining us for for today's podcast. D- Desa, did you have anything else you wanted to follow up on? Or no, no, I think that sounds good. Other than just uh, keep an eye out for New Zealand Archaeology Week. We'll share some stuff on our social to make sure you've got links. And uh, we've we've barely scratched the surface today. I know from many of our chats in the past with with Andy, Josie, and many many colleagues in New Zealand that there is so much. There's a rich archaeology out there, far beyond the uh, the nonsense Lawrence and I can pull out today. Um, <laughs> far, but um, yeah, just just keep your eyes open. Um, follow the hashtag and and see what's coming. Thank you, guys. Can I? I just remembered something that this. Weekend just gone, I went for a hike with some friends uh, to Karangahaki, which is this huge kind of gorge area. But thinking of your idea of the Hobbit Hole, um, they have where it's a gold mining, they have these little tunnels all over, like through the whole site. So there's all this like bridges and sluices and stuff for all the gold working, but they have these tunnels which you can walk through still, um, which would have been dug out, I'm assuming, either with like spades and shovels or dynamite or something. But it is kind of Hobbit sized. Um, and it's just awesome. It's just another site that you guys remind me of talking about the Hobbit holes. And I know that if you go at night, sometimes there's glow worms in the, Whoa. the and stuff. So kind of even better than a Hobbit hole, to be honest. Two of my favourite things: industrial archaeology and glow worms. Brilliant. <laughs> there's a paper waiting to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you for having us. 
no it's been so nice thank you for joining us and uh to our listeners keep keep listening out we'll be back with another series at some point in the near future but uh yeah keep an eye out for archaeology week new zealand Thank you.